The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York. Do I sound like Alex Wagner? Because this is Annie. You sound great. <laughs> Welcome to Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the carnival of preening self-celebration that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Annie Lowry, contributing editor at New York Magazine. This week, Alex is away, but with us by phone from a mystery spot that may or may not be an island off of the coast of Massachusetts <laughs> is Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent for The New York Times. How are you, Mark? Annie, I am so good. It is so good to be calling in um, because, <laughs> you know, I have three kids. And when you have three kids and you're on vacation, you know what you need? A vacation. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Well, we look forward to having you back next week. But this week, it happened. The first Republican debates, they came, they went. We'll talk about the fallout from the debates and highlight the juiciest Trump moments and more. Yes, there was more. A few other things were said by the 16 other presidential hopefuls. Next, we'll talk Iran. As the Republican debates were going on in Ohio, New York Senator Chuck Schumer had the nerve to try and steal the spotlight by announcing he'd vote against the Obama administration's Iran deal. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. And finally, if we don't educate you enough through this podcast, don't worry. This week, Hillary Clinton unveiled her plan to make college education more affordable, so we'll talk about that. And a little segment I like to call If I Were in Charge, where things get even easier because Mark and I become dictators of the entire world. (laughs) So first off, the debate follow-up. The Republican debate was on August 6th. It was moderated by Fox News anchors Megyn Kelly, Chris Wallace, and Brett Baer. Fox broke viewership records with about 24 million people watching the primetime event. Mark, what was your favorite part in the 10-person stadium fiesta that followed the uh, the kiddie table debate? <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. I, you know, and another break from my vacation, um, I actually jetted off to Cleveland. Um, see, see a pattern developing here? Um, <laughs> it was an opportunity to get uh, once again get away from my kids. Uh, I love my kids dearly, but uh, no, it, it was quite a spectacle. Um, when you go to one of these things, you fully expect that that you will, you know, be part of the circus. But mostly, what you see is, um, you know, similar to what everyone else sees on TV. What was interesting about this is that Donald Trump himself actually showed up in the media filing center immediately afterwards, which you almost never see, especially for a front-running candidate. Oh, man, yeah. And there was this incredible stampede, like a literal stampede of people trying to get to him. And it was sort of was like Pamplona, except the people are chasing the bull instead of the bull chasing people. And... It was actually very hazardous. It, there was a, it was one of those sort of professional moment, professional wrestling moments where you wonder, is this actually going off the rails? Is this really happening? And is someone going to get hurt for real? And <laughs> people were like running into each other. And it was, it was sort of an er moment of this incredibly weird situation that the GOP finds itself in, which is you have all these, you know, pretty serious candidates who have been working their entire lives and preparing for what's a pretty important debate about the vision of the Republican Party, and then all of a sudden it's just thrown into what is now month two, month three, I don't know when you start the clock on this, but of this incredible circus that that all sort of coalesces around Donald Trump, and you sort of wonder, where does this end? It is amazing. 
it, it is totally amazing, and I'm, I'm really loving it. So you talk to, to Republicans, and they're like, look, at some point, this is going to fall apart. Right. The party doesn't want this anymore. It's Everybody's not, kind of freaking out. And that's the thing is they keep on saying it's going to fall apart, but then he just does better in the polls. Right. And I feel like people are having these weird moments of saying, holy crap, what if Donald <laughs> Trump is, like, actually the Republican candidate? And, like, wrapping their, their small minds around that. <laughs> I mean, and do you feel like there's there's... Any chance of that actually happening? Because you look at the polls and, you know, I don't know, it doesn't seem impossible. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, there's been this conventional wisdom almost from the start that this is just a balloon and it's going to pop, right? Yeah. And, you know, most people would put a time frame on it of maybe a few weeks, a month. But if you think about it, I mean, the balloon kind of started when everyone was just assuming that Donald Trump was just threatening to run and wasn't going to really run for real. And then he ran and... Then this all happens. I mean, I guess the the next sort of inflection point, and we'll probably know more polling-wise, what this debate really does mean for him as far as how he's trending. I mean, everyone thought that dissing all Mexican immigrants would uh, be the beginning of the end for him. It was not. It turned out to do just the opposite for him in the polls. Then everyone thought that once he... Um, once he denigrated John McCain's war record, that would be the third rail. But in fact, the opposite happened. And now we have, you know, him him touching the third rail that is Megyn Kelly's menstrual cycle. Can you say a sentence like that? Anyway, yeah, no, he, it's he goes... It's of all of the gaffes. It, oh, gosh, it was amazing. I mean, well, everyone... And it's not you, even a gaffe. <laughs> there, I have to say, and I'd be curious to know what you think of this, Annie, is, yes, it's entertaining to watch. Yeah. But I actually, the word I would actually use almost is thrilling at this point. I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the media, especially, and, and the sort of serious people in politics, and thing, this is really very sad for democracy, and surely the grown-ups yeah. will prevail. What, what I have to say, I have, I don't know if respect is the word, but I have, you know, grudging admiration for and, and really am enjoying to the fullest is how he is flouting everything, every expectation, every notion of grown-up behavior, every notion of political correctness, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a, a message he keeps hitting hard, which is always a bit of a conservative trope. But I also think there is a nerve being struck there. But I don't know, all of a sudden, I'm just sort of just embracing the the thrillingness of this. And um, I guess I kind of hope it does go on for a while because... Yeah, I hope so too. As a pure thought exercise. It's kind of funny because on on the one hand, I think there's something really interesting about Donald Trump. And his is, if you actually kind of take him seriously and look at what he says that he would do and look at his criticisms of Obama, it's all about presidential power, right? Like I would just tell these people, I wouldn't negotiate. I'd tell them, I'd fire them. I'd do this, I'd do that. And I feel right. like if, if if we've learned anything over the course of, you know, the past decade in American politics, it's that especially when it comes to domestic policy, presidents are are not at all able to act very much on their own, right? Right, exactly. And, and so that's kind of interesting that, you know, here's this guy who basically, he's basically like, look at my dick. I promise I will not be impotent. All of these people would be impotent. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I love when you talk that way, Annie. <laughs> he's just this giant, you know, prepic. He's the Washington monument of right. presidential candidates, you know, well, um, basically yeah. accusing everybody else of, you know, and, and it's fascinating. And I think that if you are going to look uh, for examples of figures like him who have succeeded, you got to look outside of American politics. Mm-hmm. The guy he reminds me of is Silvio, Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. right? And and he really did run Italy for a not inconsiderable amount of time. He's this businessman. He's kind of shameless. Yeah. And 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 I'm with you though that 
it is so fascinating. Trump is just such like a completely delicious combination of utter ridiculous artifice and just mm-hmm. yet yeah, this this extraordinary reality where he's completely unfiltered. Mm. He looks like he's in color, and all of these other characters look like you know they're <laughs> they're in black and white. That's exactly it's really right. it, you know yeah. what's especially hilarious to me too is the two people that seem to come the best out of this debate were him and Carly Fiorina mm. of all people. Who is like an adult, right? right? She she made a bunch of really great points and seems to be benefiting it, you know, from it. And do you think that she has any chance of kind of making it to prime time? Because she's she is real far back. I do. I mean, why not? I mean, it's not it's not that big a jump to get from the kitty table to the grown up table, right? I mean, I think you know she obviously got a lot of good press and a lot of good reviews coming out of the first debate. So maybe Rand Paul, maybe Chris Christie, or someone who is. Or you know, Mike Huckabee, someone who's kind of on the on the bubble of the first tier, falls back a little bit. I mean, I think it would be good to have her in the debate. You know, on the other hand, I'm happy that Bob. I would like Bobby Jindal to stay where he is. I would like. Um, I wouldn't mind Rick Perry coming to the big stage just once. He seemed to really. He seemed really disappointed that he didn't make it. But no, Carly Fiorino. Um, when I'm in charge, and I will not make this my when I'm in charge, but I think that she has a very good chance to show better in polls and, and thus get an invitation to uh, to the primetime slots. Yeah, I think that that's right. All right, listeners, you tell us what you think. Tweet us in 140 characters or less at pod for america Let's take our gaze away for a moment from Donald Trump. While 24 million Americans were focused on the Republican debates, Democrat Chuck Schumer, New York senator, snuck in and threw metaphorical ags at the White House's windows. He said he would vote against the Iran nuclear deal. So, Mark, uh, how big of a deal is this? And do you think that his thinking is going to shift the Senate's thinking? I think the real big deal there is uh, that he creates a sort of permission structure for other on-the-fence Democrats to maybe argue against this deal. And uh, that could be a real problem for the White House. I know the White House is, is probably extremely upset by this. And I think Schumer... Being Schumer probably has thought this out very, very extensively, and you know certainly in terms of the politics of it, certainly in terms of the constituencies that that he serves um, in New York, and if if the Senate actually does not support this deal, I mean I think this will probably be like the big. Big, the big decision that was looked back upon. You know, one thing that I've I've been interested in sort of counterposing this to in my own head is the trade deals, right? So right. the Obama administration kind of lost the support of a lot of their own party there. You know, there the, the, the issues were much more in the House than they were in the Senate. But nevertheless, it was clear that they were not doing perhaps the necessary work to get folks on their side. Uh, you talk to the Obama administration about that and they would say, oh, you know, we're bending over backwards. We've met with them all of these times. You know, we were always going to lose some Democrats. You talk to folks in Congress and, you know, they they just said that they felt like they hadn't heard enough from the Obama administration and that they were not being forthcoming enough. Um, and that caused some issues. So, you know, I, I do think that that what is going to be interesting about the eventuality of this is is how much the Obama administration can go in and generate some goodwill right. with, with their own party. With their own party. And, you know, one thing that I think is is probably also kind of interesting about this, too, though, is it's not as clear to me that there is going to be so much sanction mm-hmm. for folks who vote on this one way or another in the next election. Right. I don't know that Americans actually care that much about this. We can look at some polls here. In terms of approving the final agreement, about 40 percent of Americans express some uncertainty only 32% say that they should vote against it. And I'm just not sure that Americans actually have a lot of intensity of feeling about this. That's my sense, at least. I don't know if you agree with that. 
I don't think it's ever a bad thing for a U.S. senator, especially someone like Chuck Schumer, who's who's quite partisan, to be seen as quasi-independent, especially when he's in line to be you know the next leader of the Senate. I, I think there's a lot of short-term fallout um, that can, in the long run, result in long-term credibility that can ultimately help him you know, as he tries to forge out a leadership coalition. I think you're right. And here's some some responses from some Republicans. So Walker said he would veto any deal on day one as president. Huckabee says that Obama is forgetting the lessons that we learned from the Iran hostage crisis. Donald Trump, you'll be surprised to hear, opposes it because Barack Obama is stupid. Interesting. Um, that's that, There you go. I mean, that's probably what got the and, biggest and, applause. You know, and I think this is so interesting, too. We actually have some polling numbers from Iran about this. It hmm. turns out that about 60 percent of Iranians uh, support the deal in hmm. broad terms, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, only 15 percent of people surveyed said that they opposed it. That's from a poll in May from the University of Maryland hmm. and the University of Tehran. Wow, but who do they think so, won the debate? I mean, I want to know how, what the people of Iran thought, you know, about the debate. <laughs> yeah, following. did 24 million Iranians actually watch the debate? That's that's what I would You know, know, probably. I mean, you know, or I assume they watch The Apprentice or something, right? I mean, this is, I'm sure they all know who Trump is, right? Before we move on to our last topic on today's podcast, we want to take a quick moment to thank you listeners for being in touch with Podcast for America. Your tweets, posts, and emails are terrific. We read all of them. Please keep them coming. Tweet us at Pod for America. As I sit here on vacation, by the way, with my family, one of the things we do is we read the emails aloud um, to our kids for relaxation um, <laughs> right before bedtime and right after Bible reading. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for, for if nothing else, that actually helps us get through the days and the nights of our... Yeah, Jesus, Jesus first, tweet second. I like to think so, right? <laughs> on to Hillary. Last week on our podcast, Republican strategist Stuart Stevens pointed out that Hillary Clinton's campaign is losing support with every passing week. This week, the Clinton campaign is trying to bring in better results and unveiled a new plan to make college degrees more affordable for more students. Mark, we all know that college is expensive. It's been a long time for me, eh? I mean, it really is. <laughs> I hate to say it, a, but uh, yeah, I've heard college is expensive. Sources tell me college is expensive. It's very expensive. So Hillary is suggesting that states should guarantee no loan tuition at public universities. She said that states that enroll a lot of low and middle income students are going to receive more money. And, you know, to boost the 60 percent college graduation rate, she's offering grants to schools that invest in child care, emergency financial aid and so on. So this is kind of a plan that feels fairly much like a like an echo of what Barack Obama has been doing. But where do you think she's sort of situating herself with this with this issue? What's going on here? This is kind of an example of the kind of campaign she's running. I mean, she seems to be taking a very long view and and she seems to be taking a notion that if she can put enough progressive proposals together, she will sort of get enough bricks in the wall of support that will solidify, you know, what is a huge advantage of hers to begin with. I mean, this has been a very emotional campaign so far, certainly on the Republican side. And Bernie Sanders is, is has, you know, he certainly has captured, you know, the emotion of a big part of the, the Democratic Party. I mean, the question is, is it going to be a threat to Hillary Clinton? So I, I think she, th- there, there seems to be a strategy coming out of Brooklyn. I love saying that, Brooklyn, out of Clinton land that is, is actually trying to, uh, you know, become almost a tortoise here and, and sort of, you know, you'll have 
college loans being an issue here, larger education initiatives, maybe some tax reform, housing. I, I assume housing will be a big issue at some point. Banking, yeah, perhaps. Child care. Uh, tax credits, things like that. Ultimately, very, very big issues in the larger scheme of uh, what Democrats care about and what poll respondents say that, that they will vote on. And also, they're very big women's issues. I mean, these are like Hillary Clinton is, is a, this is her turf. And it doesn't surprise me at all that she's kind of leaning into the Planned Parenthood controversy, you know, carefully. But, but I think that she feels it's a very, very safe terrain for her to be debating choice, you know, things that are related to the so-called, you know, culture wars and anything that can get uh, women voters excited about her, I think is, is a plus. Yeah. So I think that this is really interesting. So you have started to see Republicans go pretty hard on Hillary Clinton over this Planned Parenthood video and the broader issue of access to abortion for women in the United States. So, you yeah. know, I feel like if we were talking a year ago, there would have been this consensus that Republicans had basically said, you know, there's all sorts of state initiatives to make it more difficult to get abortions, to restrict them. But at the national level, there's this feeling that Republicans were kind of stepping back. They're saying, we're not going to antagonize women over this. We're going to let the state legislatures do it. But in our broader appeal, we're not going back to the culture wars. But Recently, you've seen them calling Hillary Clinton a radical, saying mm-hmm. that, you know, these are all the things that she supports. She supports Planned Parenthood. She wants more people to have access to abortion. She wants, you know, to help people pay for them, all of this other stuff. And it's really interesting, I think, because I don't know what changed their minds about that kind of initial assessment that there wasn't much of a win for them here. I, I think, first of all, issues of race and same-sex marriage are, are very much the culture war issues that they do want to stay away from, that they just mm-hmm. don't want to have anything to do with. And certainly, um, women's issues as expressed through the Todd Akins of the world and you know people throwing out words like transvaginal... Transvaginal um, ultrasounds, right? This is not the kind of you know debate Republicans want to have around, quote-unquote, women's issues, right? However, uh, reproductive rights has always been somewhat in the center. I mean, this is this has been such a you know such a divisive issue for so long. I don't have a real sense that there's a big majority support for abortion rights as there might be now for gay marriage. You know, Republicans have probably made a calculation that especially with this Planned Parenthood video, there could be some political hay to be made here. Certainly if if not in a general election, certainly in a Republican primary, which is still, I mean, whose electorate is still overwhelmingly pro-life. And and so it would be interesting to know if, if this is still something that Republicans are talking about when they actually have a, a nominee and they're fighting a more general election campaign. But I, I don't know. I, I always thought that abortion, the abortion debate was just neither a win nor a losing issue for anyone. It just sort of was emotional. I think I, I think a lot of people just sort of figured they had a headache o- over it and wanted it to go and away. And notably, one thing that I think has, has been really fascinating about the Planned Parenthood video is that that wasn't actually, this is going to sound a little weird, that wasn't really about abortions, right? That was that was about this fetal tissue. And it's just one of the most, you know, even, even for people who are fully supportive of abortion rights and believe that people should be able to access them and that, that it's between a woman and her doctor, this wasn't even about that. This was not something that anybody is talking about legislating, right? To go back to what we were originally talking about, Hillary now, she's going down in the polls. She's making this broad appeal. Uh, this college plan, which is very light on details and would basically right. never pass Congress, Congress because it requires raising taxes uh, in a way that that would not appeal to Republicans um, for many reasons, I guess. Right. Not not terribly supportive of tax increases as they are. 
Um, you know, it's it's an appeal to young people, right? Uh, this is one of these non-sexy, non-emotional issues that is nevertheless like enormously important to people up to about age forty and even beyond that. That you have this whole generation of folks who are hugely saddled with debt, and that I think after Occupy, after you know everybody moved on from sort of Wall Street and taxes and tax reform, and you know ninety nine percent and one percent, this I think is the big issue for them. You know, right. we're not going to be able to get married and have kids and have a house in the suburbs and a car and a job because we have these huge student loan burdens. And right. so I think it's it's probably from her perspective, this was a pretty canny proposal. It sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good. It's not very specific. It's never going to no. come off exactly. Yeah, very right. very light. But you know, just gesturing that she's taking this seriously, that she wants to she wants to have claim to that space that Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley have sort of laid claim to. Right. Do you think that they are really worried about these numbers and have any hope of moving them around, given that she's now kind of in the scrum? Yeah, I think they have to be. I mean, I, I think, I mean, look, if they're not, they should be. I mean, the, um, I mean, Bernie Sanders is, is going out and he's drawing huge crowds and he's talking about, we need single payer health care. I mean, you know, health care is, I mean, that battle was years in the making and it, it's sort of, it's been won, right? And yeah. he's doubling down on single payer. You are never going to get single payer through the, uh, through the House and Senate. There's just no way. I mean, President Sanders won't, President Clinton won't, President Trump won't, it won't. And by the way, President Trump or pr- potential President Trump has spoken supportively of the past about single-payer health care. You know, he. I think that he, I don't think any of them could do it, but if anybody could, he. he's actually, I think, the only one. <laughs> he's the Nixon-China single-payer guy, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it is still summer of 2015, and Bernie Sanders is probably appealing more to pure emotion. But do you and, think that um, there's anything more to kind of explaining her drop in the polls other than just the fact that she's now a presidential candidate with a giant target on her back? I, I would say that that's probably most of it. I mean, I think yeah. you are never more popular in politics than when you are not running and yeah. you know between june and july she started running i mean obviously she was running you know for several months before then and several years before then but um there was a sort of um you know starting line that was crossed and so all of the aspirational you know if only she will run sort of hope that was attached to her just sort of dissipate so you know that might change i think she's got to get out more i think you know, she's got to give some interviews i mean it sounds self-serving but i mean what's interesting about donald trump and i hate to keep bringing him up but his appeal just is, it seems to be built largely on just constant visibility and constant access to him and he, he has a real sense of joy and and gusto you get the feeling he's really enjoying yeah. himself which desperation so maybe do. Yeah. yeah, no, but it's the politics of ubiquity, right? Um, mm-hmm. How's that? The politics of ubiquity. I sound so yeah. smart. All right. All right. We're nearly out of time for this week's podcast. Nearly. But to wrap up, it's time for our weekly segment, which we like to call If I Were in Charge. I'm going to go first. If I were in charge, I would want there to be for a couple weeks, like maybe a month, maybe two months, as many Democratic candidates as there are Republican candidates now. I want to see the nuts come out of the woodwork. I want to see like big, you know, I want to see Howard Schultz, the head of Starbucks, run for president. Yeah, interesting. Because he had this hilarious New York Times op-ed. It was kind of like a, it was a variation on the why won't Obama lead theme in which he was like, people keep on asking me to run for president and I keep on saying no. And it's like, oh, Howard Schultz, oh, just run, up. damn it. Yeah, I want I want the same psycho crazy carnival we've seen with the Republicans. I want on the Democratic side. O'Malley and Sanders are not enough for me. I need like 20 times as much excitement. Yeah, let Howard Schultz. 
Schultz be? Yeah, okay, I think that's fine. And you know what? Maybe we'll all. What is it? Remember that race initiative he had? He will definitely bring America together because that was yeah, such a that wild success. Writing come together on the Starbucks cup. Yeah, man. This is the kind of nonsense that we need in that's right. the Democratic primary. Exactly, yeah. I mean, actually, I will say that, I mean, they've been very good about spelling my name right on the cup lately. I mean, it used to be with a C and it's with a K. So I, I appreciate that. Do you always um, give your actual name? Because I never do. I think I'm going to go by Annie from now on. The race uh, conversation that Howard Schultz was intent on starting didn't seem to really take off, so uh, maybe we'll start <laughs> something else. Annie, if I were in charge, it's a little bit personal, but at the debate the other night, I left probably around 12.30. I, I wrote my little cutesy story. Now I was driving back to my hotel in my rental car, and I was dying for, you know what I was dying for? A burger. One of those king cones, you know those like nutty buddy cones where they, you know, you have the, the chocolate and like the walnuts on top. And at the debate, they, were sell they had this big fajita bar, which was really quite bad. And all I wanted driving home was a nutty buddy ice cream cone. And they didn't have them and no 7-Elevens had them. And so I would like every person who goes to a presidential debate to be given a nutty buddy dash king cone you know what i'm talking about right yeah sure well it's Don't interesting because that's a that's a combination salty sweet snack i only like salty oh. snacks so i like like potato chips are my favorite food um wait, but i think like everybody sweet snack wait wait wait, wait. What? what what kind of what's your like you don't like anything sugar like you don't like oh, combination no. salt salt i'll eat like a donut or whatever i'll eat ice cream okay. i just prefer salty snacks i feel like everybody is either a salty snack or a sweet snacks person but it seems like you might be a hybrid because the those little king cones they're they're combination salty and sweet because you have like you know the peanuts and stuff it's like cracker jacks or kettle corn. Yeah, let, kettle corn would be good. Although, let me let me actually, let me expand this. If I were in charge, Annie, I would just begin my reign by just giving everyone one of these little ice cream cones. And if they don't like it, um, we will try to you know, create a movement that can bring people to our side. And you will be my first convert in <laughs> trying to get you to like these things. And, um, you know, we'll go from there. I think that there's, yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of room for understanding between our peoples. And I think this would be a perfect metaphor. <laughs> to, um, you know, to, to really get the ball rolling here. Well, I think what Mark is trying to say is that's all from Podcast for America this week. Thanks so much to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and as always, Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And if you like us, please be sure to tell a friend or two or 11. Subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover or avoid our content. For Mark Leibovich, who is somewhere, I'm Annie Lowry in New York. Until next time, thanks for listening.